0: Welcome to the New Books Network. You can measure public opinion and you can manipulate it. You can even create it, and politicians and corporations do all of those things. Uh, You can also think about it, the idea of public opinion, and what role it plays in modern society. And that's the task uh, Susan Herbst has set herself. She's a professor at the University of Connecticut, and she's just written A Troubled Birth, the 1930s and American Public Opinion, and the reason she highlights the 30s will become apparent as we talk. But first of all, just uh, welcome, Professor. Thank you. It's great to be here. And let's just begin with the the nature of public opinion. Uh, people started measuring it in the 30s. Did it exist before it was measured?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Part of my argument has been through my entire career and all my work is that public opinion is a it's a phantom it's a reification call it it's social construction and it it only exists as we form it that it depends on how you're measuring it when you're measuring it what you're going to do with it and whether whether it's worth measuring so there have been a variety of techniques over the years across nations to try to get at public opinion depending on who you were. I mean, were you trying to sell the public something? Were you trying to rule the public? Were you trying to ready the public for war? Were you just trying to persuade the public in order to go along with a a set of policies or get elected? So it's a very malleable concept. It's a very public opinion some people have argued in in my field in the social sciences maybe we shouldn't maybe we should just stop using that phrase. <laughs> so that's something I've thought a lot about too. It's 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 elusive. It's there's too many ways to define it and think about it, but I think it's also very powerful.
0: Right, but um, so so you say that the way you measure it makes a difference to it, but presumably before you even measure it, you need to know there's a public, right? So that means that there's a community, I mean, a nation state maybe, or some other community which can be measured.
1: Yeah, that you're thinking of the public as some bounded entity um, that you can query or question or watch their behavior, which, you know, there have always been behavioral measures of public opinion. In the United States, There was, you know, through the 19th century, debates about the public and how to think about public opinion. But, you know, not so much, in part because America was very, uh, the population was so dispersed. You know, we were largely rural population. But in the 20th century, people, there was urbanization, industrialization. People started moving to cities. There was more interest in some kind of a concrete populace instead of this diverse you know, very dispersed public of the 19th century. There's this great, I think it's 1924, maybe 1927, it's an article in the American Political Science Review in the 20s where the greatest minds in political science, some of the great white men of political science are having a round table. And this article is a report on the round table where they're trying to come up with a shared definition of public opinion. So in the 1920s, in this, this you know, burgeoning field of social science, the great, uh, you know, wise heads thought it would be good if we all had a common definition. And uh, they go around and around, and they can't agree. So weirdly, they decide at the end to just start measuring it. <laughs> and the first time I read this, I, you know, I, I read it a few times, is that since we can't agree on a definition of the term, let's just get out there and measure it. And for them, measurement meant the the still new survey, you know, the, the sample survey.
0: Just to be clear about that, what did they actually disagree about in that conversation? What were the various ideas put forward?
1: One of the most important ones was whether the public needed to be informed or engaged to be worth measuring, to be worth paying attention to.
0: And, and, and it, in terms of global opinion. I mean, I remember at the BBC World Service where I used to work that they were always coming up with, one of these companies did surveys of global opinion. But that hardly makes much sense, does it? Because it's too diffuse to mean much.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm always surprised when there's, you know, there are very serious people who work on polling in Russia, for example, or other authoritarian states. I mean, I don't know what you do with those data. I don't know what they could... They could possibly mean in democracies where they're polling, and you see these these um, these these global polls. You know, which population is the happiest, for example, is a, is a common poll you see. And the Scandinavians always do well on that <laughs> for some reason; they're the happiest people. Um, yeah. So in democracies, you know, the polling has about has the same struggles that we have here in the United States, but. I'm always surprised to see people bothering to poll in authoritarian states. I just I can't imagine that a respondent would be open to a pollster.
0: Well, let's go back to the 30s and you 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 make the point in your book that polling started then this whole idea of public opinion uh took off in the states at that time and that it was an unusual time there were lots of things yeah interesting things going on there was broadcast media there was the consumer consumerism was coming in you had a you know charismatic president and it was the back end of a of a fierce recession depression so can you tell us a bit about why polling came in at that time and how those factors played in
1: so many people in the 30s were worried about possible uh, fascistic tendencies authoritarianism rising in the united states so watching what was going on in europe um, there was a lot of concern about that um, especially among you know statesmen and, and journalists intellectuals so there was a fear in the air that you know populism, which, you know, in the late 19th century, in the United States had been, a you know, the People's Party and a kind of agriculturally based populism, that that could turn very quickly into fascism. So in the 1930s, there was a kind of, there was an obsession with populism, popularity, and which way that could go. So that's one of the things that drew me to the 30s, besides the fact that institutionally, public opinion, measurement and expression gets formally started in the 30s was this, um, that we're walking on a knife's edge all the time between, you know, the popularity of an idea of a leader and authoritarianism. So the 30s, that just, it it weighs very heavily on people. Conspiratorial thinking, you know, we've always had it and there's the, um, the famous Richard Hofstadter article from the 19 uh, 1960s that I always assign to my students that's a, um, about paranoia in american politics we've always had conspiracies but the 30s really they you know they did <laughs> they did their their work on conspiracies there were a lot of concerns of course about FDR and that all these new deal programs that were being implemented were part of a takeover of the United States government, by elites, you know, led by Roosevelt, call him left, call him right. Roosevelt himself was worried about a dangerous populist on his right, Father Coughlin, the quote-unquote radio priest, who was a extremely popular broadcaster, anti-Semite, uh, had tried to cozy up to Roosevelt early in the, in the 30s, and Roosevelt wasn't having it. So he was a danger on the right. And then Roosevelt, of course, had Huey Long, the famous governor turned senator from Louisiana, with his populism from the left. And Roosevelt worried about that, too. So it was it was a time when, you know, conspiracies, populism, fear of elites, anti-intellectualism, worries about radio. Radio was was really diffusing in the 1930s. And there's there was a lot of worry about what it would be used for. I mean, we were watching Hitler make such effective use of radio in the nineteen thirties, and and we saw Father Coughlin doing it here. FDR certainly used it to his advantage, but these new media that could that had such a just a far reach and were so compelling, what were those gonna do to us? And today we have um social media and and um our concerns about
0: that so well yes, so so let me ask you directly then. I mean, do you think that radio in the 30s and social media platforms now you know are similar in that they are destabilizing in in some way and they are throwing uh, confusion into the political system both in the 30s and now.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's what the 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 danger of somebody like Father Coughlin or Huey Long before he was assassinated, um, in the early 30s and which must have been, some kind of relief to to Roosevelt. Um, even Eleanor Roosevelt, who never said anything bad about anybody, <laughs> said, said some things about Huey Long. So you had those people who were going to be very sophisticated or sophisticated users of media. I mean, the big difference, of course, is that radio is a, or at least it was in the 30s, a one-to-many medium. So there's really there's a feedback loop in that broadcasters have market research And they can, you know, they they get feedback from the public about programming, but it's not very nuanced as compared to today, where you put put out a tweet, you put out something in social media, and you are going to get direct feedback, you know, from people in their own words, in a way that you didn't have in the 30s.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting to draw lessons, you know, from the way radio was handled for social media today. So I guess there was some regulation of radio. Uh, through the FCC, although not much compared to Europe. And then you also have to wonder about whether radio remained a destabilising force. I mean, we've got the right-wing shock jocks in the US who've had quite a big impact. And, you know, looking further afield, places like Rwanda recently, they were, you know, radio was thought to have inspired the genocide there. So radio has remained powerful. And I guess, you know, the lesson may be that social media will need regulation, but it too will still leave a big mark, you know, 50, 60, 70 years from now. And
1: let me say too about radio, it's, um, boy, radio is still, and and now, I mean, there's a kind of a, it's hard to draw the line between radio and podcasts, uh, because so many podcasters who have very big audiences, you know, they, it is the same general, you know, it's the same functionality as, as radio, even though you, you get on it differently. And um, look at Rush Limbaugh's impact on American politics. I mean, it is profound. You know, it's absolutely profound. And we've got similar broadcasters today. There's a, as you know, having worked for the BBC, and given what you do now, the voice, the radio podcasting is so incredibly intimate. And we still have no medium quite like it. You know, when you can't, see the person um, and you can hear them. There's this kind of intimacy that, you know, early researchers of the radio were just absolutely amazed by. That kind of intimacy is, is, I don't think it'll ever be replaced, hence the popularity of the podcast.
0: Yeah, it is a defining characteristic of radio. I mean, it was slightly off topic, but it always struck me, having done yeah you know, 30 years of it with the BBC, that people would write to me and I was astonished because they really knew me and it was just really shocking to me that, that that radio was that just as you say intimate that people could work things out just from your voice and hesitations and and pauses and so on uh, so it it, it is uh, yes anyway so it does remain powerful but getting getting back to our you know subject uh, the 30s were striking as well in that there was a question about what it meant to be American, which you again have today, right? Maybe caused again by the this new media that's come on the scene. It's encouraged a debate, which again is a parallel.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so it was something journalists, intellectuals, college professors, newspaper editors, they were, they were concerned about. So we have all these tools now. We have the public opinion polls we're starting up, and there's Immigrants. Immigration. I mean, after the 1920s, when immigration was was really slowed by the federal government, the number of immigrants decreased, you know, pretty dramatically in the United States. But there were many, many immigrants and ethnic minorities here already that had come in in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. So the population was changing between the, the, the advent of technology, how to measure public opinion, the advent of radio, a new compelling Communication technology, urbanization, and immigrants, uh, either recent or second generation, um, trying to integrate into this, you know, our alleged melting pot. There was a lot of anxiety about who was really American and who wasn't. And the magazine Harper's ran a contest in the early 1930s where they asked readers to write in, write essays, and you could win a thousand dollars or some 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 very big prize for back then. The winner, and they just they couldn't, you know, they were they were just bombarded with so many entries, and the thing was such a mess that they had to, you know, write about that. That we here we are an American public that. The president, you know, FDR says we're a public. Manufacturers say we're a public. They say we're a public of consumers. Radio acts like we're a public, but we don't really know what it is to be an American public. So we're being told we're an American public, but we don't know what it means to be American. So hence a lot of tension and fighting about that. So do you want me to talk about the um, that broadcast, uh, Americans All, Immigrants All?
0: Okay, let's hear about that.
1: I think probably, you know, the first really progressive attempt at coming to grips with our immigration, our diversity as a nation, started in the late 1930s by FDR's Department of Education. It was was called something else, along with uh, CBS, decided to air a program for months on end. It came on every Sunday called Americans All, Immigrants All, And each time, each broadcast took on a different ethnic population, um, including Jews and African Americans, although they were hardly, you know, immigrants in the sense that um, some of the others were. Uh, So that was an early progressive attempt by a broadcaster in the federal government to try to get at this question, what is an American? And the, the answer for them was an American is somebody who wants to be here, you know, somebody who... Strive to get here, or found themselves here, and wants to contribute their. This is very common language in the 1930s. Their gifts, whether that's um, their talents with their hands or their minds—scientists, um, artists, whatever. So, people were worried about this question: who was American? And there, there were progressives trying to answer the question too.
0: Now, then, you have in your book uh, tried to expand. Uh, The idea of measuring public opinion from surveys and polls to a broader description, well, study and description of uh, cultural themes. So we've talked a bit about radio, but you also look at uh, world fairs, for example, as an expression of public opinion. Can you just talk us through that?
1: Well, in the 1920s and 1930s, those men who were interested in public opinion, they also, they were sociologists and they were historians and um, they had a kind of a broader perspective on the world. But as the social scientists, social sciences became more quantitative. um, Social scientists of the last many decades have been less historically oriented have really failed to look at cultural indicators of public opinion. Um, Most important, I think, is what entertains people, what people are drawn to, what excites them, what moves them call it infotainment, call it entertainment, call it whatever. But a wor- the World's Fairs, which and the, the U.S. Had, had two just spectacular World's Fairs in the 1930s, one in Chicago, one in New York. Those were places where tens of millions of people, you know, passed through the gates in the summertime over two summers. And you can take the World's Fairs exhibits, the forms of entertainment, people's reactions to the fairs, their incredible popularity. And you can look at the world's fairs as a text about public opinion in the 1930s. You know, what what exhibits were put out there by industries, by manufacturers. Um, of course, the great American industrial giants had you know, spectacular exhibits, as did state governments. And many nations, of course, exhibited their foods and their dance and their culture, and, um, you know, Americans uh, came from came from all over, from all over the country to the fair and found it incredibly engaging. But the fairs are a text about public opinion, what what excited us, what moved us. And also, the fairs were, so they were a kind of a way to measure public opinion. So you know, whenever you have a, a technology of public opinion, it has two sides. It's a measurement technique but it's an expression technique so the world's fair the same way it was a a way that people through their attendance were and their enjoyment were expressing public opinion it was way for manufacturers like gm for example or ge these big firms to also measure public opinion you know what what do people like about our exhibits what are they interested in and uh, so it, it had that function as well.
0: But it seems to me I mean if you look at let's say those world fairs uh, and they might send you in the right direction presumably about what Americans are thinking and what American public opinion is but isn't the unique thing about this whole area that you can measure it with these polls quite accurately and so you know the world fair may prompt you to ask the right questions in a survey but still the survey is the thing.
1: Yeah I mean, so now we're getting into just the the problem, the fundamental problems of surveying there's the, one of the toughest problems, people get distracted about what are the problems, what aren't sampling, sampling the public is the least of our problems. I mean, there are ways to do sampling scientifically. That's not an issue. Interviewer effects, people used to get hung up on that. Like could the interviewer in a scientific survey somehow sway the respondent? That's really, you know, most, you know, Good firms and academics know how to keep the interviewer's opinions and persuasions out of it. The problems of survey research have been there from the very beginning, and they're they're profound. There's the question of, you know, how often? So people change their minds. And, and sometimes, especially if the issue is not one that they're well informed about, um, they can change their minds often. Uh, they can change their minds in response to watching Tucker Carlson and as he changes his minds, they may change their minds. So there's always the question of, you know, when you're polling, there's a the question of whether the audience understands the issue or not, the framing of the question. You know, none of those problems have gone away, no matter how sophisticated we get about sampling. Now, in terms of pre-election polling, that is very accurate. And people shouldn't be distracted by the fact that we thought Hillary Clinton would win over Donald Trump. I mean, that was a very clear failure of state polling organizations and you know newspapers that have very little money to do this, in particular states, not polling often enough, close enough to the election. I mean, that was a very particular problem with the quality of state polls. The national polls usually hit it on the head. So pre-election polling is, it's fine, you know, it, it, uh, and you can argue that it, it ruins the campaign and all that kind of thing. But I guess I've always been more interested in attitude polling, and issue polling, um, more than just the, the vote choice.
0: Well, wasn't there a bigger problem there? If you take that, uh, I was going to ask you about this, this, the Clinton-Trump race. I think it's fair to say that the political commentariat in the U.S., Vast bulk of it failed to see Trump coming. And yet, you know, a few insightful commentators and indeed activists like Bannon uh, did see it coming. And they were onto something that the polls didn't seem to reflect. Is that right? So, that, I mean, that's surprising, right? You, you would think that opinion polls would have been able to see what people's concerns were uh, that might lead them to support Trump over Clinton.
1: It's one of the points in my book, and, and Trump is just, he's, he's absolutely perfect for this thesis, is um, Trump has a incredibly keen sense of American public opinion. And, it's, and he's had his setbacks. You know, The Apprentice was wildly popular until it wasn't, but shifted gears, made up, you know, got onto the birtherism bandwagon. He has this, just this, this incredible sense of figuring out, you know, how cruelty can work as a persuasive mechanism, what Americans are anxious about. He's, you know, he's, you got to argue that he's a, a kind of a brilliant theorist of American public opinion. And he was not as he rose in his success and as he eventually won the election. I mean, that was a campaign that was slapped together for a long time. You know, he, he wasn't a person who was always looking at opinion polls. I mean, he looked at ratings for the apprentice. He was very interested in ratings because he knew and knows that what people do with entertainment, what people are interested in entertainment, whether they're interested in contests or cruelty or competition, what people like, celebrities, so forth—that's who they are. I mean, that's a that's a kind of a public opinion measurement. That kind of what people watch, listen to, like to do for fun—that's incredibly valuable. Much more valuable than anything you could count in a nice, you know,
0: kind of quote-unquote scientific poll. Well, that's so interesting because I mean, that really does suggest that polls have very limited utility. Because you've got someone here who, you know, somehow has insights into the American psyche, who is outperforming in terms of his understanding of how to sway public opinion and get votes. All the well-paid analysts in the Democratic Party, in the Republican Party, in the newspapers and universities, all the rest of it, uh, who failed to see it as clearly as he did.
1: I showed my students some clips of Sarah Palin, which she was running for vice president with John McCain in 2008. And they were really taken with her, and I said, "You're not the only ones with her. She was she was such great foreshadowing for Trump, and I'm sure he was he was watching that. But but he was good at it too, even better than her. That the way to talk to people to entice them, to worry them, to play on their anxieties. I, I am very worried about the the meanness and the cruelty. Which Sarah Palin, you know, you see a, a bit of that." because she's a woman, it kind of came off a little bit softer. But but Trump was watching that that compelling way that she had. And okay, it turned out poorly for her and John McCain, but she was onto something and her style and her engaging way were were really something, you know, very... Very intriguing.
0: One of the issues that always comes up with polling for an election is, you know, does it have predictive power? And the pollsters will keep saying, no, no, we're not predicting anything. We're just measuring what opinion is today. But obviously, people read polls with a view to predictive power. And and you're saying that Trump's cultural understanding gave him predictive power. So when you look ahead... At the future of public opinion and trying to work out which way it's going would you rely more on polls or on a study of culture and maybe particularly the media as a, a, to give you insight into where things are going
1: you know I think both I mean I had some training survey research I think it has uh, it has value I mean, it's something I get accused of a lot is that I want to destroy polling research. And that's, that's not the case. I just think that it needs to be put in its place along with um, other kinds of measures, other kind of indicators. You know, public opinion, the public sentiment is so complex that it's going to need multiple measures. That said, political scientists in particular, I mean, sociologists and anthropologists, are, they're broader than we are in so many ways. And uh, historians certainly are. We need to to watch. We need to listen to popular music. We need to watch Dancing with the Stars. You know, like we really need to take popular culture seriously, and not just hold it in disdain. Most most of my students, uh, you know, they they watch YouTube all day. You know, they're not watching necessarily the highest rated show on ABC television. You know, so we're going to have to pay more attention to what looks like it's what looks like is trivial. So we missed the boat on Trump. You know, he because of The Apprentice, because of his celebrity, he had a just a, a massive audience that found him incredibly attractive and we miss that whole thing, and there's, you know, I mean, I don't have any colleagues who who say that. Oh, back when Trump was incredibly popular with The Apprentice, I could see that he would be a, a political leader that could possibly win the presidency. <laughs> Nobody's saying that.
0: Well, I think Steve, Steve Bannon is actually. And when you and when you look at um, the various people trying to understand uh, modern society, you know, you've got the pollsters, you've got political scientists, as you say, you've got historians. And anthropologists but you've also got artists you've got people in advertising who Mm -hmm. you know so in a whole series of madmen was sort of built on the idea that uh, you know a brilliant ad executive could have some sort of insight into social trends that others weren't quite seeing as quickly as he did Uh, so when you look at all those different groups which do you think uh, has the best tools to to predict where and understand where things are going
1: you know, the, um, we have some sociologists and some political scientists now who are doing the really labor-intensive work of talking to people. And it means going to people. And one of the problems with survey research is that you call people or, uh, you know, uh, or contact them by the internet um, anonymously. You you tell you tell you don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. Nobody reading the poll will see their opinion. You know, there's all that anonymity is critical for survey research. We as social scientists, and I think some of the best people studying public opinion now, are trying to talk to people in their natural communities. So one of my favorite colleagues is a professor at the University of Wisconsin, Kathy Kramer who started out doing this work in a kind of a lonely way, but um, has really spent 20, 30 years now talking to many of the same people in the same communities throughout the state of Wisconsin, especially in the rural areas. She could see in her work some of what we're seeing with, with, with Trump and the kind of anxieties that people felt in the Midwest, what they were worried about, tensions, over things like race and entitlements the notion of being left behind by an American elite. You know, she was seeing, because she had such, you know, so many depth conversations for so many years with people ensconced in their natural communities, there's nothing wrong with, as sociologists know well, and Arlie Hochschild is, is also a, a great uh, a person who studies, kind of red America these days, that it's okay to study people in groups in their natural environments where they tend to be more forthright. That's not to be confused with focus groups, which, you know, you see oftentimes on television, they've picked, you know, journalists and network have picked a a focus group of people who don't know each other. And they're just, they're an artificial community that are just kind of ridiculous. You need to go to people in their real communities where they're going to feel very comfortable Talking about the texture of their lives, what they hope for, what they're concerned about. So, I think the best public, opinion, some of the best public opinion research will be about doing this. It's people don't like to do it because it means, you know, going on the road and, you know, spending a lot of time with people and, and hearing them out at length. So there's some, you know, excellent journalists who do this, this sort of work, but it's expensive, it's time consuming, but I don't think there's any way around it.
0: Professor, thanks so much for uh, giving us your analysis of what's going on in the field of public opinion. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's my pleasure.